You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast that's using this Ouija board We found in an abandoned haunted house To give us feedback on our fan fiction Where Mulder and Scully go back in time To fight Dracula And Scully and Mina Harker make out While giving everyone the finger Whoa, the... The planchette's moving on its own. It's, oh, it's saying, it's saying hot, but needs more editing. Yeah, that's fair. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And, wow, the the world is sure making it difficult for me to do so, but uh, we're continuing our month-long descent into the spooktacular world of joy and wonder that is Halloween. Yay. Ooh. There you go. There's That's that Halloween enthusiasm. <laughs> Coming at me with a fucking yay. Yay. Boo. <laughs> Originally, this was going to be our, our ultimate Halloween episode, but we did a bit of a content switcheroo with our Patreon-voted episode for synergy reasons that will become apparent when we get to that... Well, that episode. So yeah, this is sort of outside the the purview of a typical classic lit episode of Ono Lit Class, and uh, that's because it was going to be the ooh Halloween episode, but whatever. Fuck it. It's October. The world is burning. I have a stomach infection. I do what I fucking want. And you know what I want to do, RJ? What is it you want to do, Megan? I want to goose your bumps. I want to just take your bumps and goose them right up. Not my bumps. Not my bumps. That's right. This episode is a retrospective through the most classic of children's horror literature, Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. That's not close enough at all. Yeah, hang on. You're not going to pull up the dubstep remix, though, are you? No. What's all mysteries? The real, the real spook master. Now I get this. I just wanted to get to the dog barking. <laughs> Goosebumps. Oh god, there's the cat. <laughs> no, Robbie. Goosebumps. No. <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> oh no, no, lick class. Will Goose. Your mother goosing bumps by talking about goosebumps. 
Shakespeare new theme song. The Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> theme song should be our new theme song. It claps. I mean, I'm not arguing that it doesn't clap, but it is sort of confusing. You're an unsolved mystery. The Goosebumps series has been tingling the spines of kids in grades 4 through 6 for the past 28 years now, with approximately 8 bazillion books in the series. Name a more iconic horror writer. Edgar Allan Poe. Or, wait, no, fuck, sorry, I had I accidentally a word in there. Name a more iconic contemporary horror writer. Well, how do we define contemporary? Well, Edgar Allan Poe's been dead a real long time. We can give him that. Or is he? Hit the answer. <laughs> <laughs> do it, do it, do it. <laughs> Not I it. Ah, oh, well, you fucking ruined it. I was gonna let you. I was gonna let you do it. <laughs> Stephen King, who? Yeah, sure. He sold a measly three hundred and fifty million plus. Now, I cover books. this. I'll talk about this. Oh, that's my job. <laughs> Fine. Jesus. Look, maybe in times gone by. The initials for Spooky Scary were HP, but today, they're definitely RL. And also, I'm pretty sure he's not a horrible, horrible racist. No, I don't know if you've looked into that. <laughs> I could just be saying things. He could be a terrible person. I will say, we will get to it, RL Stein does have a moral failing. Oh? Yep, but we'll get to that. Um, okay. It's not unique to him. Um, okay. There are sick people out there. Um, okay. Based on the fact that you're doing that thing where you, you, you giggle, you like put your hands up. I really wish you guys could see it because Artie's not a, uh, he's not a small guy. I mean, this is a person who used to play, uh, hockey, which is not a, a sport for small guys. So this is a large bearded man giggling into his, uh, into his chest like, so that's how I know, like, you're going to do a gag. So no, it's hard to do news. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And that's why you're, you do this, like, little teehee thing. Like, you should be, like, wearing a, a sailor costume and holding an oversized lollipop. It's his family, not mine. Okay. So, RJ. What's up? You haven't read a lot of things in this world. Nope. Did you read Goosebumps? Some when, of when, them. You, when you were small enough to be wearing a sailor outfit and holding an oversized lollipop? I was probably older than that. I read some of them. Okay, which well, which ones stick in your memory? Kids turned into werewolves or werewolves turned into kids, I think. Definitely there were vampires at some point. That's interesting because for all of the, the things that he really enjoyed uh, trotting out on a regular basis, vampires were very few and far between. I don't remember the rest, but I know they were there. <laughs> there were werewolves and they were vampires. Yeah, and other things. <laughs> I'm not easily scared, so it didn't have much of an impact on me. Did you read the dummy one? Probably. I mean, the dummy one. Then well, dummy this... one. Okay, he, there were like eight. Yeah. Slappy was very popular, which we will get to. The enduring popularity of Slappy the dummy. Yeah, we will. Very quickly. That's foreshadowing. So yeah, I read the shit out of Goosebumps when I was a kid. I had so many fucking Goosebumps. I had much of the original Goosebumps. I had the Choose Your Own Goosebumps, which we'll, we'll get to. I had Goosebumps coming out my goddamn ears, even though I was a soft, soft child 
who was very frightened by them. So I would also get in trouble because I would bring them home from the library because my parents would not buy them for me because they knew that I was a very soft child who would get scared by them. So when our school would take us to the library, I would just rent a whole fuckload of them and bring them home. And my dad would be like, why are you doing this to yourself? You know you're going to get scared. What kind of masochistic shit is this? And I would be like, no, I'm brave. I like it. It's good. And then like that night I'd be like, Because I was a soft child. You're not Myrda at all. Who? Brave. No, I'm not Scottish. No. No. You know, after 10 years, I'm glad that you can tell I'm not Scottish. <laughs> it took you a while, but we got there. Yeah. Was that her name, Myrda? I think. Because I mean shit in Spanish. Maybe. Myrda or no. Mir- oh, Merida. It Mer- was Merida. Merida. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> fucking Pixar wouldn't name their fucking main character something that, like, so immediately means shit in another language. Or would they? You're going to be getting a lot of mileage out of that, aren't you, this Halloween? Maybe. This yeah. is such a good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, before we can say cheese and die, we need to learn about the man behind the monster blood. RJ? What's up? (laughs) Can I help you? (laughs) Do your fucking job. (laughs) That's what's up. (laughs) I made the book puns. Tell us about fucking Arl Stein. Robert Lawrence Stein, a.k.a. Jovial Bob Stein. A.K.A. Eric Affaby, A.K.A. Daddy of Slappy. <laughs> was born October 8th, 1943 in Columbus, Ohio. October 8th, of course, being both National Fluffernutter Day <laughs> and National Pierogi Day. This is the bit, huh? We're committing to this. Some damn tasty holidays. <laughs> Slap Daddy's mother, Anne Feinstein. Slap Daddy. That's what we're, all right, okay. Slappy slap, Daddy. Slap Daddy. No, I like Daddy it. Daddy Slaps. Yeah. You want to know more about the jovial Bob side of it, we have a... Uh, oh, we'll get there. Oh, I was going to say, we have a study break, Patreon-only episode about that. So, all right. Well, anyway, <laughs> Slappy Daddy's mother, Anne Feinstein, was, was a homemaker. His father, Louis Stein, was a shipping clerk in a warehouse. Daddy Slappy would eventually get two younger siblings, Brother Bill and Sister Pam. The family did not stay in Columbus for long, which is a good move, as it turns out. Columbus is considered to be the 147th best city in Ohio to raise a family in. Yes, according to the good folks over at Wallet Hub, there are 146 better cities in Ohio to raise a family. The best thing I could say about Columbus is at least it beat out Cleveland, which comes in at 185th. Second to last, only ahead of East Cleveland. But I thought Cleveland rocks. The family moved to Bexley, Ohio, which ranks 22nd on the same list, so a definite trade up. This did not solve all the family's woes, however, as Slap Daddy recounts, quote, <laughs> you call your, Is he Daddy Slappy? Is he Slap Daddy? I, I demand consistency. No, he's a little bit of everything. As he recounts, quote, We were very poor. I had to wear my cousin's old clothes to school. I think it made me very shy. It's one reason I like staying in my room and writing. Daddy Slappy's turn 
to writing took off when he found an old typewriter up in the attic. No word if that was a hand-me-down from the same cousins. He took that old bad boy down to his room and started pounding away the keys, specifically slapping out short stories and joke books. For the younger members of the Ono oh Lick Class family, typewriters were like a keyboard that typed letters onto papyrus or paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like dumb computers. Shit was whack before computers. Oh my god, I hate you. Well, I always remember a computer in my house growing up. We also had an electric typewriter that was very loud and very smelly and very heavy. It came in its own briefcase. It could have killed a man. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Mama Stein did not like this typewriter business and begged Slap Daddy to go outside and play. Please, Slap Daddy, go outside and play. <laughs> Go play with the other boys. Yeah, that's definitely what this Midwestern Jewish woman sounded like. But the real world, the outside world, was just too boring to Daddy. So he stayed in his room typing away. Some say he's never stopped typing since. Spooky. Honestly, with this, with his fucking output, I can believe that. Yes, actually, given the amount of work he's put out, <laughs> it might actually be true. Ooh. Despite his knack for writing, Slap Daddy was not a great student in school. He was a BC kind of student, although he admits that may just be because he wanted to be the joke master that was always goofing off and he never really put that much work into school. So for all you kids out there, school is completely and utterly optional. Tell your parents Slap Daddy didn't do school, so I don't need to do it either. And say just like that. <laughs> just like that. Slap Daddy didn't do school, I don't need to do it either. Don't elaborate. I mean, honestly, like, look, I'm not going to, like, diagnose someone I don't fucking know, but just speaking to, like, writers and creative people and general temperament and, like, my own personal experience as a writer with severe ADHD who did, like, okay in school and also was, like, kind of a goofball, like, yeah, <laughs> You might be smart and you, you might just do kind of okay at school because it's hard because you don't want to focus on it because you want to focus on the shit that you're interested in. And also because you might have a neurological disorder. Shrug. Aside from writing his stories and joke books, he also took a turn at drawing comic books. He began to pursue a career as a comic book artist, but it turns out that he had no drawing talent whatsoever, which is a bit prohibitive in that field. I know those fields. And so he stuck to writing. He was terrible in math. He hated P.E. In fact, he says the only sport he was ever good at was ping pong. Probably because of the slapping. Probably. Honestly, I'm feeling really seen right now. Me and R.L. are, like, connecting. The one thing he was good at was writing, and so naturally, when he was in high school, he joined the school newspaper. From high school, Daddy took his talents to the home of the Buckeyes. He attended THE Ohio State University. And really, on the journey through mascots we do on this show... The Buckeyes are literally the worst. The worst. Is that because they are the worst or because you hate Ohio State? I'm ready to catch whatever hands might come my way, but it's verifiably true. This is also where R.L. Stein's moral failing comes in. Ah, because his moral failing is that he went to Ohio State. No, not even that. <laughs> he had never enjoyed football until he went to Ohio State, and being at Ohio State awoke in some fandom in football, and so to this day... He's a big Ohio State football fan, and that's wrong. You're such a fucking nerd. That's wrong. 
And you're the worst kind of, well, no, no, you're not the worst kind of nerd. The, the worst kind of nerds are the ones who, like, are Star Wars fans who go on Twitter and, like, harass John Boyega, but God, sports nerds. Daddy got his degree, a Bachelor of Arts in English, in 1965. During his time at Ohio State, he served as the editor of The Sundial, the school humor magazine, for three years. Much like his younger years, he boasts that he never went to class and that he spent all his time working on the magazine. That's the kind of <laughs> academic prowess you need to graduate from the Ohio State University. Like many Ono oh Wood class authors before him, Swap Daddy looked around his world, in this case Columbus, Ohio, the city in Ohio with 146 cities above it in the ranking, and realized there was no future there. And instead he turned his eyes to New York City. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 we gotta say right. New York City. New York. The city for writers to move to after college. That's what's on the banner. Yep. Now entering New York City, where writers go after college. It was 1967, Slap Daddy was 24, and he reveled in all the glitz and glam in the Big Apple. And he got a splashy gig in the Big Apple working for Playboy. No, that's not right. Let's see here. Oh, the New York Times. Oh, um, no. He got a job with Scholastic to write for school magazines. You know, the old detention forum. At the same time, he began to write joke books and humor books for kids under the name Jovial Bob Stein. The weirdest fucking pen name. He wrote books titled How to Be Funny. This <laughs> hey, maybe that's something you could look into. Hey! <laughs> Not! <laughs> Great, now, yeah, now all our listeners know what you watched last night. You want, you want to toss it up my wife? Wow, <laughs> The Sick of Being Sick book and 101 Creepy Creature Jokes. He also created Bananas Magazine, which he dubbed a, quote, zany humor magazine, which he wound up editing for 10 years. Can you imagine editing a magazine called Bananas Magazine for a decade? Might drive me to make goosebumps. <laughs> In between his wacky and spooky and laughing ways, old jovial Bob turned into thirsty Bob, who turned into married Bob. <laughs> oh, thank God. I thought you were going somewhere real bad with that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> he turned into married Bob when he married Jane Waldhorn in 1969. Jane was a writer and an editor, and later in life she would help found the publishing company that would publish all of R.L. Stein's most popular works. But we're not there quite yet, because Bob was so funny and not spooky quite yet. In 1980, the spookiest thing possible happened to Slap Daddy and his wife. They had kids. They made a baby happen. I mean, think about the first sentient being that had kids. That's got to be a trip, right? There's two of you just enjoying life, going about your ways, but then one of you starts to put weight on and getting pretty round around the midsection. And then boom, two becomes three. And this third is a needy, fussy, wet, slippery, shrill little thing. All my poly folks out there know this is the worst kind of third to have. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. Well, parents, you can't just dump this third. I mean, I guess you could. That, but... <laughs> that would be pretty fucking terrible. But, but it is morally and legally wrong. In 1980, Jovial Bob and Jane Waldhorn had their only child, Matthew. This awoke something deep in Jovial Bob. He says, quote, I told myself, forget the funny stuff. 
Kids like to be scared. Damn straight. Kids don't want to laugh. They want to cry and scream. They want to feel alive. So he dumped the funny shtick and he turned to horror. You want, you want another crack at that one? Horror. That may have been worse. Slapdaddy said of his own relationship with horror that, quote, I always liked scary movies and books. When I was about eight or nine, I started reading scary horror comic books. They were called Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt. My brother and I went to every scary movie. We didn't get scared. We always laughed. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. He also said his favorite horror novel is Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ono Class alum Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. In 1986, at the tender age of 43, as R.L. Stein, he published Blind Date. It became an instant bestseller. He quickly followed that success with Beach House, The Babysitter, and Hit and Run. Also, you might ask yourself, but why the name R.L.? Because he says he just thinks it sounds a bit eerie and not normal. I agree. R.L. is just icky. R.J. got them curves for days, baby. The curves, <laughs> all the boys, girls, and gender non-conforming people just can't quit. Oh, yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Yep. You need that swoopy. You gotta have the swoopy. A J things. is not just a backwards L. Got that badonk. Swap Daddy also was the co-creator and head writer for the Nickelodeon children's television series, Eureka's Castle. What? This is another one of those generational things, I think. What? I barely remember this show. But I do remember it, and I do not particularly remember liking it. Episodes of the show made up Nick Jr. programming blocks during the 1989 to 1995 seasons. The show follows Sesame Street-like puppet characters. You got the titular Eureka, sorceress in training, and her friends Magellan the Dragon, twin moat dwellers Bog and Quagmire, Batley the Bat, and Mr. Knack the Handyman. I remember Batley. And Batley's pet spider Webster. Yes, a bat named Batley owned a pet spider. This was a crazy world, not rooted in reality. This is probably why I disliked it. I came out of the womb wanting serious and accurate journalism. You could have caught pre-puberty RJ watching things like Jim Lair's News Hour on PBS or Squawk Box on CNBC. Not anything where a bat keeps a spider as a pet. Although it sounds like Megan maybe watched this show, huh? Yeah, I totally watched Eureka's Castle. Also, God, you're such a fucking nerd. Um, that's weird. That's crazy. In 1989, Daddy Slaps began working on the series that would become the best-selling young adult series in history. Daddy Slaps. <laughs> the Fear Street series, which contains over 130 books in the series. Daddy only focused on the series for a few years until about 1992, when he turned some of his attention to the focus of this episode, Goosebumps. Goosebumps began in 1992 and quickly became a hit around the world, and is what made Daddy Slappy a worldwide publishing celebrity. It also made him a star beyond the pages as well. The Goosebumps TV show was the number one kid show in America for three years in a row. This series also has over 130 titles in the series, and new titles are still being published. It is likely not a surprise that Daddy's favorite Goosebumps books are The Haunted Mask and all the books featuring his boy, Slappy the Evil Dummy. In fact, the newer books are published under the series name, Goosebumps Slappy World. Yep, we'll get there. And the Haunted Mask will be one of the ones that we're going to talk about. He's also admitted if he could be any character, he would be, quote, Slappy, the evil dummy from Goosebumps. He gets away with murder. 
Why does he keep working on these books? Because as he says, quote, I just like to scare people. Look, everyone's fetish is different. <laughs> we don't kink shame here on Ono Lit Class, except when we do. Daddy Slappy has continued to try and branch out. After his grandson was born, he decided to do his first picture book titled Little Shop of Monsters. In addition to that, he's working on several new projects, including a series of comic books for Marvel. All in all, he has sold over 400 million books, and his books have been translated into 35 languages, making him one of the best-selling authors in history. Based on the list I came across, he's approximately the 17th all-time best-selling author, right between Dean Kuntz and Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> Don't know why that's funny. But yeah, he outsells Stephen King. Oh yeah. Ha! At his height, he was pulling in $41 million a year. Not bad. It's a good gig. His books have sold over 400 million copies worldwide. Three times during the 1990s, USA Today named Stein as America's number one best-selling author. In a recent interview, Slapdaddy talked about his writing process and about how he manages to continually create so many books. As it comes to the genesis of ideas, quote, When I write, I always like to know the title first. Then I have to know the ending because I write it. I can figure out how to fool or surprise the reader. He adds, Ideas come from everywhere, but most of my ideas start with a title. I try to dream up a really good book title first. Once I have a title, it leads me to a story. By the way, I've never gotten a story idea from a dream. I have the most boring dreams. An example of inspirational moments, quote, I just like walking along and a title pops into my head. Like I'll think, Little Shop of Hamsters? Hmm, what could I do about hamsters? $41 million a year. God fucking damn it. He also claims to have pulled inspiration from real life as well. Quote, one Halloween, my son Matt put on a green rubber Frankenstein mask and then had trouble pulling it off. That gave me the idea for the haunted mask. What if I got this thing off my head and I couldn't take it off? He does add that he does not base his characters on people he knows, but he does sometimes use their names. Welcome to the Matt Groening Club for character naming. Considering how fucking horrible some of the names are in these books, it really makes me wonder about people he knows. There are kids in these books named Bird and Skipper and, like, Flips and shit. Yeah, Flips. I know Flips. He does all his writing in a writing studio in his apartment where he keeps mask, a skeleton, and a three-foot-long cockroach to create what he calls an eerie atmosphere. When he's done with the book, he gives the manuscript to his wife, who serves as his editor and publisher. He says she is a, quote, very hard editor. The two continue to live in New York City with their dog, Minnie. Of course, Stein has won many awards during his career. Among the awards he has received are the 2002 Champion of Reading Award from the Free Public Library of Philadelphia, the Disney Adventures Kids' Choice Award for Best Book Slash Horror Mystery, the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award. He's been listed on People Weekly's Most Intriguing People list. <laughs> Such an intriguing person. He holds the Guinness Book of World Records uh, record as the best-selling children's book series author of all time he's won other stuff too but come on once you win that disney adventures kids choice award you got shit on lockdown now you might be wondering is there anything too spoopy for slap daddy actually there is oh just one thing oh you want to take any guesses Meg? 
Now, do you mean like something that he's scared of or something he'll never write because it's too scary? I don't know if I ever write about it, but it's it's the one thing that he was asked. You know, like, are you afraid of anything in this world? Ah. And he said he's afraid of one thing. Uh, bugs? Quote, I have one phobia. I can't jump into water. I have to step into a swimming pool. I can't jump or dive in. My nephews think it's a riot that a scary guy like me is afraid to jump into a pool. What a weak old man. <laughs> Leave him alone. His, his joints are probably bad. I don't it's a know. phobia that he's always had. <laughs> As for if he's ever seen a ghost or goblin. Quote, As if he's ever seen a goblin. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Well, if you ever seen a ghost, maybe, but like, yep, oh, I saw a goblin. <laughs> Quote, I've never seen a ghost, but I keep looking. <laughs> don't we all slap, Daddy? Don't we all? That's not goosebumps. That's unsolved mysteries. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> The end. Very good. Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm R.L. Stein. I write the Goosebumps books. Or is it? Swerve is Megan, per, per usual. Hope you guys are enjoying this episode. Uh, sorry that it's up really late. Not to be all like, but um, I've been pretty sick with a stomach infection and been having to go to the doctor who's been like, yo, there's bad things inside your body. And I've been like, oh no. And it sucks a lot. Uh, But yeah, that was part of why the Phantom of the Opera episode didn't even have a mid-roll in it because... We didn't have a pod pal, we didn't have any new patrons, and I was just fucked up real bad. So I was like, nope, just cut it, get it, try to get it out on time. And that didn't really work out with this one. But that's enough bitching from me. What I would prefer to do is thank our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons who give me goosebumps. I don't know if that's the voice, it's the voice now. You guys do so much to help support the show, and we love you all so much that it's scary, including our newest patron, Jadecore. So thank you, Jadecore, and thank you to all of our patrons. If you would like to help support the show, then you can pledge at patreon.com slash onolitclass and get all kinds of cool stuff like access to bonus content and stickers, bookmarks, t-shirts. Um, you get to vote on episodes that we do, like the next episode is going to be a Patreon-voted episode. And then um, at some point in November, we are going to be doing a very specific patron-requested episode. That's the big one that you get when you spend 50 bucks and you just say, do this, and then we do it. But that's that's November. We don't want to think about November right now. We want to think about Halloween. We want to get back to the Goosebumps. What do you say, RL? Viewers beware, you're in for a scare. 
So the books that I wanted to hit and uh, focus on real quick are uh, some of the more famous and iconic ones, or just ones that are kind of particularly batshit. Okay. The first one is Welcome to Dead House. And this was the very first Goosebumps book. And so, um, you know, on the cover to all the Goosebumps books, they have, like, little quips on them. And they, they usually have, like, a pun or something. Like, uh, piano lessons can be murder. Have a tagline that says, play it again, hands. Because it's about getting your hands cut off. Um, the tagline to Welcome to Dead House is just, it will just kill you. It's going to kill you. <laughs> That's just the tagline. Like, this house will fucking kill you. So this is the first book. This is what we're coming right out the gate with. Welcome to Goosebumps. This house is going to fucking murder you. <laughs> I mean, look, Meg, you know the scariest thing of all? Facts. <laughs> so this is 1992. First book. We meet Amanda and Josh Benson. They move to a creepy old house in the town of Dark Falls. And... They're taken there by their local real estate agent, Mr. Compton Dawes. So we're already also getting into really weird names. You know, it's just me and my friend Compton. As happens. Uh, their dad, Mr. Benson, says he inherited the house that belonged to his late great uncle that he didn't even know existed. Yeah. He never knew the guy. He just gave a house. These things just happen. And uh, Amanda and Josh have this little dog, Petey. And Petey immediately knows, this house ain't right. This neighborhood ain't right. Um, even though it's the middle of July, the entire neighborhood is covered in some kind of strange artificial darkness created by the shadows of, of massive overhanging tree limbs. Everything's creepy and dead and weird and bad. And you're just immediately pulled into this sense of, of dread. While uh, exploring the house in her new room, Amanda sees like a glimpse of a boy standing in the doorway before disappearing. Whoa. Whoa. And she goes outside to tell her brother about it, but then they realize that their dog, Petey, is gone. And also Josh is gone. I fucked that one up. Gone. And so the, the family drives off to try to find Josh and Petey, and Amanda finds it weird that she doesn't see anyone in the town anywhere. And they eventually, they find Josh looking for Petey in the cemetery of Dark Falls. And they manage to find Petey and put a leash on him, but the dog is, like, freaking the fuck out. So they wander around town. They meet up with locals who, you know, they seem kind of friendly, but just, just a little bit weird. They meet a guy named Ray Thurston. It's a little off-putting. A couple weeks go by. Petey goes missing again. They can't seem to find him. And Josh and Amanda figure, well, maybe Petey went back to the cemetery like he did before. So they go out to check it, and they go to the cemetery, and they bump back into that guy, Ray. And Ray's like, you know, what are you doing being out so late? And they are like, oh, no nothing. It's, it's, it's fine. We're good. And they go to the cemetery, and they find a headstone. You know what they find on the headstone? Dead person below. Well, one would assume. They find they find a name on the headstone. Yeah, well, words. Yeah, yeah. Whose name do you think they find on the headstone, RJ? Slappy. It's not called Night 
a living dummy. Dead house. It's Ray. It's Ray Thurston. They Holy find his. Shit, they find not Ray's Ray. Name. Yes, Ray says, "Yep, that's my name, all right." And he is. I read this one. Oh. I remember this gimmick now. Ah, see? There you go. It all comes back to you, Mr. Oh, I remember these books that well because I didn't get scared by things. I remember this gimmick. Ray is one of the living dead. And once a year, he and the other living dead in this neighborhood must have blood from a freshly killed person to sustain their living dead existence. And you know what? You know what happened to Petey? Petey's fucking dead. He did. They killed the dog because dogs are real good at sensing the living dead. Yeah. <laughs> Book one of Goosebumps. R.L. Stein killed the fucking dog. <laughs> and so Ray attacks Amanda and Josh saves her. And you know how he fucking saves her? How? <laughs> he shines a flashlight at Ray. And then Ray disintegrates. Because light bad. White is bad. And he becomes a pile of bones. Oh. This seems like a fairly serious design flaw in the living dead. They run home and they get attacked by uh, more dead children who explain that, oh yeah, there's there's no dead great uncle. And uh, the letter is a trick to bring the Benson family to Dark Falls and that this is just a thing that they do. They lure families to the house so that they, what they can eat them. Um, 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 um. And Mr. Dawes, the real estate agent, finds him and the dead children vanish. And he's like, hey, I, I found your parents. We're, you're good. I've, I've saved you. And they're like, oh, thank God. And then they just conveniently trip over another gravestone that says Compton Dawes. And they're like, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I guess you caught me. You know, this was a normal town once. But then it... <laughs> But then a yellow gas escapes from a nearby factory, and now we're all undead. That happens. <laughs> and then they run away because Josh hits him on the head with a Bonk. flashlight. And so they, they just escape these zombie kids by turning on lights at them, and they knock down a tree, and that lets light in, and they all go, ah! and they grab their parents, and they're like, let's get the fuck out of here. And as they're leaving Dead House, they see a new family on the drive on the driveway, and Amanda notices that it looks like these people. Here's here's the twist. Uh, it looks like they're being guided by someone who looks suspiciously like Mr. Dawes, and she's like, "Nah, can't be." And she tells one of the kids that she used to live in their house, and then they drive away. Oh shit. So that that's what R.L. Stein decided to just like pop off with right away. <laughs> Gotta spook them kids, man. <laughs> Stein uh, claims that this book may be too scary for kids. You know, what with the dog murder and the luring people to a house to kill them all to sustain the zombies because he didn't have his funny elements yet. And he says if he could rewrite the book, he would make it, you know, Make it funnier, you know? Make it a little funnier. At one point, I didn't say, Amanda has a dream where her family are all skeletons. A similar dream does appear later on in a, a 
later books say cheese and die where a camera predicts that people are going to die but the dream sequence in this book is like way more detailed and horrible so he just he came out really strong and then was like okay i guess i'll dial it back a bit from here on out or will he (laughs) what no he he will oh he will Next on the list is our iconic dummy friend, yours and mine, Slappy. Slappers. Slappers in Night of the Living Dummy. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Slappy's barely in Night of the Living Dummy. Oh, shit. He's actually not even the antagonist in Night of the Living Dummy. Whoa. He doesn't even come into his own and actually till the sequel, Night of the Living Dummy 2. So who's the first dummy? Well, listen and find out. All right, I guess I will. So Lindy and Chris Powell, they're, they're sisters. This is also, um, this is this just as an aside. So obviously, yes, yeah, Slappy became incredibly popular. And horny. And horny, so horny. We'll get to that. I know you probably just said that as a joke, but we'll get to that. Oh. <laughs> Because, you know, dummies are scary and, and everyone is afraid and horny. of dummies. I'm uh, pe- guessing. You know, people are afraid of dummies. But also, it creates, because there are so many sequels to Night of the Living Dummy, it creates this weird, like, goosebumps universe where kids just be playing with ventriloquist dummies. You mean you did it? <laughs> it's like, it reminds me of this thing where, like, when you were a kid, you thought, like, maybe, like, quicksand was something you were going to encounter way more as, like, a problem when you were a kid. It's a big issue. <laughs> this sort of creates a world where kids are just way into ventriloquism. <laughs> and so it just creates way more situations uh, where ventriloquist dummies are going to be an issue far more frequently <laughs> than one would assume in, like, a normal child's life. Hey, Meg. Yeah, RJ? Do you think this is why fisting is so much more popular nowadays? Yes. Yes, I do. It's, it's this generation of kids, Meg. You know, you train them to stick their hand up a wooden man's ass, and they grow out of playing with dummies to grow into playing with people. So Lindy and Chris Powell, uh, they're sisters, and they decide to inspect the house that's under construction. Oh, I thought you were going to say fist each other. <laughs> they decide to fist each other. <laughs> <laughs> As sisters are wont to do. (laughs) While searching through a garbage container near the house, Lindy finds a mysterious ventriloquist dummy and decides to call him Slappy. Which, what the fuck? There's so many things to take apart just in that sentence. He slashed it. So these are just two tween girls. And it's like, hey, let's go look at this construction dump. What's this? Oh, it's an old dummy. It's mine now. I love him. What am I going to name him? Slappy. Yeah. <laughs> Lindy, you, uh, the next, uh, Lindy uses her dummy to gain popularity. Yeah. As one does. Guys, check out my dummy named Slappy. This slaps. You are now the coolest girl in school. It was a different time, I guess. A different universe. <laughs> When you could be the coolest girl in school by showing everyone the ventriloquist dummy that you fished out of the trash. You know, Meg, I'm beginning to think Goosebumps, a slappy universe, 
is based on Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, you think that's it? It sounds like that's a bunch of a... Buckeye fans to me. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So when Wendy, against all odds, her and her dummy just get real popular, and Chris gets real jealous since the the neighborhood kids. Just seem to love her fucking ventriloquism. Lindy starts using Slappy for, for children's birthday parties. And uh, Lindy and Chris's parents are like, you know, share the dummy. Share Slappy. But when Chris tries to take Slappy from Lindy, Slappy hits Chris in the face. Slap. <laughs> yep. The next morning, their dad reveals that he bought another ventriloquist dummy for Chris from a pawn shop. Chris decides to call him Mr. Wood. <laughs> Mr. Wood. And so uh, Mrs. Berman, Chris's music teacher, asked her to perform a ventriloquist act for the school's upcoming spring concert. You know, hey, Chris, you just got a dummy like a day ago. Will you perform in the school concert? And in fact, Lindy offers to help Chris improve her act. But Mr. Wood, (laughs) currently being held by Lindy, begins hurling insults at Chris. Chris assumes that Lindy is the one speaking, but Lindy insists that she isn't controlling the dummy. That night, Lindy and Chris hear strange noises from inside their house. When they go investigate, they find Mr. Wood strangling Slappy. When the sisters tell their mother what happened, Mrs. Powell doesn't believe them and tells the girls to go to bed. Whoa. Chris continues to hear noises coming from the kitchen throughout the night. She goes downstairs and sees Mr. Wood lying near the refrigerator with food around him. Before they can clean everything up, Mrs. Powell goes downstairs and sees the mess. They try to convince their mother that Mr. Wood is responsible, but Mrs. Powell threatens to take both Slappy and Mr. Wood away if the girls keep insisting that Mr. Wood is alive. While the girls clean up the mess, Lindy reveals to Chris that she's the one who's been doing these horrible things. She was tired of Chris being a copycat, so she decided to pull a big prank on Chris. What a bitch. Then she mocks Chris for buying it. She's like, you dumbass. (laughs) You dumb fuck. (laughs) But Chris doesn't tell their mom because they've been banned about, you know, from talking about the dummies. And so she's like, whatever. But a couple days later, she finds a small card in Mr. Wood's pocket that reads, Karu Mari Odana Loma Molanu Carano. Yep. Those are words. Yeah. After she reads the card out loud, she thinks she sees Mr. Wood blink. We find out, like, five books later, this is a wizard's curse. Fuck. It means, like, from now on, or as you speak these words, you and I are one. But yeah, we don't. We find this out, like, way later in a different book. Uh, that night, the Powell's elderly neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Miller, come visit them, and Lindy and Chris's parents are like, Do ventriloquism for the neighbors! Dance, monkeys! Linda, uh, Lindy decides to go first, and hers is a success. Before Chris can perform her act, Mr. Wood insults the neighbors, and so Chris is grounded. But she's still allowed to attend the school spring concert the following day. Seriously, these kids became ventriloquist experts, like, in a week. Maybe they've been throwing their voices for years. I guess. Uh, at the concert, Mr. Wood insults the teacher for being overweight, and Mrs. Berman demands an apology, but Mr. Wood responds by vomiting green slime on the teacher in the audience. And just goes full exorcism. Mr. Powell says, all right, Mr. Mr. Wood's going back to the pawn shop. And they lock Mr. Wood in a closet, and they go to sleep. 
but Chris is awakened by the sound of footsteps, and she wakes up and sees that Mr. Wood is alive, and Mr. Wood's like, guess what? You and Lindy are my slaves now. You brought me to life with your magic words. And she tries to fight him, but he hits her in the stomach, and it's like, wow, you can't even beat up a fucking dummy. It's like two feet tall. Come on. We watched the Goosebumps TV show, which we'll get to. You can beat up a dummy. It's not hard. <laughs> Lindy hears her sister, goes downstairs, sees the fucking Mr. Wood, and Lindy, who's not a fucking scrub, manages to pin the dummy to the ground and, and keep him from running away. Then the girl's parents get back and Mr. Wood stops moving and Lindy and Chris are like, the fucking thing's alive, but of course, the parents don't believe them because that's, you know, that's, that's the thing. That is the hallmark, that's a staple of Goosebumps books, is the parents do not believe you. Which is an interesting thing to kind of think about, like, for all of, like, the things that are overtly scary in Goosebumps books, like dummies and ghosts and goblins and things that are gonna eat you, that underlying fear of, like, if... A parent's love. Well, no. That's pretty spooky. <laughs> well, that if something bad is happening to you... You can't trust the people who you feel like you should be able to trust to protect you. That they're not going to be able to help you at all. And in fact, they won't even believe you. You can only believe in yourself. And can you even believe in that? Or do you got them like little black worms like they get behind their eyes? I don't even know what you're talking oh, about. Oh, and the exiles? That was the weirdest one. I don't know that one. Like they got to have leeches, but the leeches run inside of their body. Ew. No, I don't like that. And you don't even know it. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, just playing up that idea where you would typically look for, for safety or validation or confirmation. You ain't gonna get it. Them places with those little yellow signs of people hugging. Yeah. Yeah. They had those on the outside of the library. I was thinking the firehouse. <laughs> Where I want to go is with big, beefy men in overalls. It's a safe place. They're going to hug you there. Keep me safe, Fire Daddy. <laughs> so they start to question Chris's mental well-being instead. That See, that's fucking scary to me. Your parents don't believe you. They question your mental well-being, saying they should take her to a doctor. Uh, as soon as the parents leave, Mr. Wood comes back to life, continuing to insist that Lindy and Chris are his slaves. Just fucking punt the little shit. The girls try to decapitate him, but they are unable to harm him. So instead, they put him in a suitcase and bury him in the backyard. Unfortunately, when they wake up the next morning, they see that he's freed himself. When their parents go out to show how serious he is, he begins to choke their family dog, Barky. Bark, bark. Bark, bark. In an attempt to separate the two, they drag Mr. Wood and Barky outside. Bark, bark. Mr. Wood releases Barky, and the girls chase the dummy into the path of a nearby steamroller being used for the construction next door. Yeah, Mr. Wood dodges the first steamroller and tells them both that they're going to be his slaves forever. What he doesn't notice is that second steamroller on the grassy knoll. Oh, no. And it crushes him. And a mysterious green mist arises from the smashed dummy's body. So Lindy, Chris, and Barky return home safe. And they get to their room and they find Slappy waiting for them. And Slappy goes, So is the other dummy gone? <gasps> the end. Whoa. Yeah. So Slappy ain't even fucking the dummy in the Night of the Living Dummy. 
he ends up, you know, becoming the much more famous icon that would be associated more with anything. Uh, Mr. Wood would not make another book appearance until 24 years later. Nice. Until uh, his origin being revealed in the prologue of I Am Slappy's Evil Twin. According to R.L. Stein's autobiography, he got the idea for the first three Night of the Living Dummy books from reading The Adventures of Pinocchio when he was young. And being like, hmm, don't like that. Which, yeah, that's fair. But yeah, so that one doesn't even get shown. That, that didn't make it to the Goosebumps TV show. It just jumps right to Night of the Living Dummy 2. Okay. Because that's the one where Slappy is the villain. Yeah. Where he gets picked up at like a pawn shop to replace a child's falling apart ventriloquist dummy. Because again, in these Goosebumps books, kids just be having ventriloquist dummies. Wow. <laughs> So many kids just take up ventrilo- Wait, was that a thing? Maybe? Like, I was really young in the 90s. I, I was age 0 to 9. So the, the only thing I could think of in the 90s <laughs> that was hot with the name Slap were those Slap bracelets. Well, not Slap, but you, you, slap. Were, you were much- Slap sticks. You were much more cognizant- They weren't dummies running around. Ventriloquism wasn't, like, the hot hobby? No. Okay. Because in R.L. <laughs> Stein's world- Kids just be doing ventriloquism. Alright. Next one is the Haunted Mask, which I would say probably is, like, visually, at least in terms of, like, the cover, one of the most iconic Goosebumps books of the for a little girl in overalls, little 90s overalls, just stretching a big green monster mask across her face. So Carly Beth Caldwell is a quiet, shy, trusting girl who's scared of basically everything. And there are these boys, Chuck and Steve, who make her life miserable and scare her all the time. And they make her eat a sandwich with worms in it. Mm -hmm. You know, like bullies do. As they do. <laughs> Just weird shit in these kids' lives. One day, Carly Beth comes home to see that her mom has made a perfect likeness of her face in plaster. As a symbol of her love for her, which is creepy. Although that reminds me of, uh, right, your cousin, whose mom made a full-scale statue of him as yeah. a child. Yeah. <laughs> which is still in his home. Yeah. And is the creepiest fucking thing to see at night. It, come, it comes alive at night, he wanders around. It looks like it would, because it is the size of a child. I think it's a golem. It, yeah. At least this is just a head, which I can't honestly... I don't know if that's better or worse. And then her mom also made her a duck costume for Halloween, which also made her angry because it's, it's silly. Quack, but, quack. Quack, quack. Yeah. Gordo. Like, like, oh, poor you. Your mom made you a costume. Yeah, Phantom of hands. the Opera. Yeah. Classic. Then uh, she calls and talks with her friend Sabrina on the phone and they talk about how Steve and Chuck are dicks and Carly Beth's never gonna fall for one of their tricks again and she thinks about buying a horrible mask from a new shop that just opened in town. But before that happens, Steve makes her think that there's spiders on her leg. I don't know. Carly runs off in tears. Everybody's laughing at her and she goes to the costume shop but is sad that it's closed, but the owner of the shop lets her in and is just like, here, look upon my masks. But she sneaks into the back on accident. I guess she doesn't sneak. She unwillingly falls into the back. 
and sees the ugliest mask that she's ever seen. The owner's like, no, you can't have these. And she's like, no, I'm taking them. And then she throws money at him, takes the ugly mask, gets home, puts it on, scares the shit out of her brother. And at first she can't get it off. You know, just like R.L. Stein's son. The mask won't come off. Trippy. Ah. But then it does. Oh, that's good. And Noah's like, oh, wow, how did you change your voice to a scary hoarse growl? And Carly Bess like, I don't know, but I liked it. I smoked a pack a day for three straight weeks. <laughs> In preparation. And she put the mask back on, and it seems to suck itself onto her face. Well, don't use those words like that around kids, like. <laughs> well, tell her I'll sign that. And she's just like, yeah, this is fine. This is normal. She takes the mold of her, her head that her mom made. She puts it on a stick. And she's just like, this is awesome. I'm going to fucking terrify these two assholes. And she acts like a different person. She scares the shit out of little kids. She attacks her friend. She vandalizes the neighborhood. She scares Chuck and Steve. And then is freaked out that the plaster mold of her face talks to uh, Chuck and Steve and is going, help me, help me. And it's like, holy shit. So I'm she... a plaster mold. <laughs> but then she's just like, you know what? Actually, fuck this. And she abandons it. Wouldn't it be way better if I had a whole body? I could help myself. <laughs> oh no, I'm just a head. And she goes back to Sabrina's house and they're like, oh, let's, let's get this thing off my face. Except there is no more off her face. It is her face. Dun, dun, dun. And so she goes back to the shop. She bought the mask and finds the owner waiting for her, who knew she would come back. And the shop I knew you would come back. <laughs> Just like that. And the shopkeeper tells Carly Beth over and over that the mask can't be removed because it's not just a mask, it's a face. He says, I made them, and they were once beautiful, but then they decayed over time till they became monsters, and he calls them the unloved ones, as opposed to the other faces he made that I guess were the loved ones. They stayed beautiful. Yep. And every so often, a young, innocent person like Carly Beth finds one, thinks it's a regular mask, puts it on, and this happens. And the shopkeeper's like, hmm, guess I should probably maybe keep the back locked. The only way to remove the mask is to find a symbol of love. But if the mask is ever put on a third time, it will be forever. She looks in the mirror and sees the horrible face staring back at her, and she cries and screams... And this awakes the evil masks behind her. And they're like, Carly Beth. And she runs away. But then she finds the mold of her face that her mother gave her. And she's like, oh yeah, it's a symbol of love. Cool. And then the mask pops off her face. And it, it was fine. She goes back home. And she's like, all right, taking this thing off. And she just drops the mask. It's like, this is a horrible, dangerous thing. I'm going to just put it down. So then, of course... Noah appears from the other room and goes, Hey, look, I have the mask. Doesn't it look good on me? And then the the last one I want to read isn't necessarily one of the more iconic ones, but everybody who I've ever talked about it to remembers it very vividly because it's 
fucking insane, and nothing about it makes sense. I've never forgotten it. As I was rereading it over, like, I was shocked at how much I remembered it with, like, near-perfect clarity, because it is absolutely fucking wild. That is my hairiest adventure. So, 12-year-old Larry opens the, the, the book by running from a stray pack of dogs. This happens to him a lot. He talks about he's just a magnet for it. He's just always running from stray dogs. Again, just a situation that kids just thought they'd find themselves in, I Some guess. Some kids are just doomed. <laughs> to run from stray dogs. Uh, but they're shooed away and he's saved by his best friend, Lily, who has one blue eye and one green eye. And this is important later. And they go into a garage where his friends... Where does she keep them? An interface. Where? In, in her face. Where? Where her eyes go. Oh. They're, they're friends Manny, Jared, and Christina are waiting. They're in a band called The Geeks, and they're getting ready for the Battle of the Bands. And they practice, and then they go out and play in the snow, and then they spot a junk pile, because also the, the other thing kids always do when they're not doing, you know, ventriloquism is they, they root through piles of junk. And they find what looks like a, like a medicine chest, and they find a bottle of lotion that says, Instatan, rub on and get a dark suntan. And it's expired, like, several years ago. But they're like, ah, let's do it anyway. Won't it be cool if we go to Battle of the Bands and we have, like, cool suntans even though it's winter? So they rub this expired lotion that they found by a dumpster all over their bodies. <laughs> it's great. And then Larry feels himself getting sick. His vision grows hazy. He collapses. And he's taken to Dr. Merkin, who administers him a shot. And he tells Larry's parents that his sickness was the result of overheating caused by weak sweat glands. Because of this, Larry has to have a shot every two weeks. And he goes back home. He gets ready for bed. And when he goes to brush his teeth, he notices a thick patch of dark hair has grown on the back of his hand. He freaks out, but he shaves it off. And he wonders if the expired bottle of the tanning lotion could be irresponsible. The next morning, he asks Lily, like, Hey, are you growing any hair in places you didn't used to have hair? I'm growing a tail. And she's like, no. And then she calls uh, him... Not your puberty yet. Yeah, no. And then she calls him Harry Larry. <laughs> and then he notices he's got hair on both his hands. He runs out of the room and he grabs gloves and he wears them all day. He goes home and he's sad and he cuddles his cat Jasper, but Jasper doesn't like his weird hands. So he just keeps shaving and getting hairier and there's just hair growing everywhere. And then they realize they can't find Manny and Manny's disappeared and also his house is completely empty. And they're like, why would Manny move without saying goodbye? And then Larry reveals everything to his father and his dad becomes frightened and rushes him to Dr. Merkin who gives Larry a shot. And Larry's like, could it be the Instatan? And the doctor's like, no, that's stupid. And then he asks his friends about it, and they're like, no, that's dumb. Lily's really quiet, though. And the next day, Lily's gone. And Larry gets chased by dogs again. But there's a dog that he sees that he doesn't recognize. You know what the dog has? One green eye and one blue eye. Where? In its face. Mouth? No, where its eyes go. Wow. <laughs> he sees Lily's parents and he's like, hey, where's Lily? And Lily's mom's like, no one named Lily lives here. And she grabs Larry and she's like crying and she's like, there never was a Lily. Forget her. And he's like, what the fuck? 
So they play the Battle of the Bands anyway, and they're doing bad, but then everybody starts cheering, and Larry realizes they aren't cheering at their music, they're cheering at the sight of him growing hair, because they think it's a cool special effect. And he runs back home. He's like, look, I'm growing hair. And the, his parents are like, Larry, it's not because of the Instatan, but it's because you're not human. You're a dog. You're a dog, man. You see, Dr. Merkin performs tests on animals, and he created a serum that can turn dogs into children. Huh. <laughs> but it doesn't last long, which is why Larry has to get the shots. <laughs> you see, here's the thing. Tell me the thing. So it was like a program, right, for parents who couldn't have kids. <laughs> Is adoption too cost prohibitive? Turn your dogs into kids. Yeah. <laughs> it makes so much more sense. It's so much easier. <laughs> so it ends. But Larry reverts being into a dog. But he's it's cool. He has a lot more fun being a dog now. It's way more chill than being a kid. And he still plays with Lily and Manny, who are also dogs. But one day, he sees his former parents' car roll into the driveway, and his former mom comes out carrying a baby wrapped in a blanket, and she says, Oh, well, say hi to new baby Jasper. And he's like, wait, that was the cat's name. Oh, no. Oh, now we're turning the cat into a baby. Just get a foster kid. What the fuck? <laughs> Can't trust any animal. I think it's just the most fucking insane concept for a fucking book <laughs> we can't have kids what will we do why not turn the dog into a kid <laughs> i think like that the instatan is like a MacGuffin. it's like you just put expired lotion on your body yep didn't really have anything to do with anything so the original run of goosebumps books ran for 62 books from 1992 to 1997 62 books in five years, with uh, R.L. Stein bragging that he could crank out one of those fuckers in uh, under 10 days, which, like, yeah, you know, they're all of 20,000 words long, and the plot is basically any Stephen King story, but with dumber names and no weird sex shit, which honestly makes them a significant improvement over any Stephen King story, but anyway, you know, you throw your M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end, and then once you got your template, like, yeah, you can goose your bumps like nobody's business. Yeah, but he doesn't use... The sauce. Does he use any performance-enhancing drugs, a.k.a. cocaine? No, he does not use cocaine. Well, in fact, starting in 1995, Stein was like, fuck it, you do it. Oh, I thought you were going to say, fuck it, I'll do cocaine. <laughs> fuck it, I'll do cocaine. With the spinoff series, Give Yourself Goosebumps, which in retrospect <laughs> sounds so fucking dismissive. <laughs> I do that by sticking my fist up my ass. <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> RJ gives himself goosebumps. I just love, like, what? These books aren't good enough for you? Well, go give yourself goosebumps, why don't you? See how you like it. I just remember the tagline, Rita beware, you choose the scare. And they were basically just, like, spooky, choose-your-own-adventure books. I only remember the one which was Beware of the Purple Peanut Butter because the cover was viscerally fucked up and had a kid trapped and struggling in a weird gooey-ass sandwich like reaching out toward the reader like, Help me! Reading. It's fundamental. Other sequel and spinoff books included 
tails to give you goosebumps, which spiraled out into the most hilariously lazy series titling. More tails to give you goosebumps. What do you think came next, RJ? Even more tails to give you goosebumps. Yes, actually. What do you think came after that? The tails that will give you the most goosebumps. No, it was still more tails to Uh, give you goosebumps. Can you guess what came next? Still even more tails to give you goosebumps. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't fault you, but it was more and more tails to give you goosebumps. But what do you think could have come after that? Check your privilege for people who can't get goosebumps. No, no, it was not. Mm. More and more and more tales to give you goosebumps. And after that, it was Goosebumps 2000. So Goosebumps 2000 was just more Goosebumps, which included sequels of some of the original run, including Night of the Living Dummy 4, Bride of the Living Dummy, a.k.a. This Time Slappy Gets to Fuck. (laughs) He wanted to know when the dummy gets horny. Slappy slaps. This series only lasted from 1998 to, ironically, 2000. So Goosebumps 2000 ended in 2000. (laughs) Then in 2008, as the first Iron Man movie was only just making its way into theaters and the shared Marvel Cinematic Universe was a mere twinkle in some movie exec's eye, R.L. Stein was on that shit with Goosebumps Horrorland, an interconnected 19-book series that brings together characters from all over the bumps, the bumpsiverse, the gooseiverse, the gooseiverse, the gooseiverse, Slappy, Carly Beth, the Masked Kid, the Evil Camera, what predicts your death? They all come together in Horrorland, an evil theme park first established in a book of its own in the original run. What's spookier than the continuity of a shared universe? It was followed by the Goosebumps Hall of Horrors miniseries and. Uh, yes, right, OLRL wasn't done printing money yet. From 2012 to 2016, he made the series Goosebumps Most Wanted, which doesn't seem to mean anything. It's just more Goosebumps, including yet another entry into the Haunted Mask canon, which I think had, like, four sequels, and then also the eighth Slappy sequel. Slappy has a human son, and no, I will not elaborate. And that leads us into the final spinoff series, which you mentioned, Slappy World. Currently running and quite obviously created in the wake of the popularity of the first Goosebumps movie where Jack Black did funny dummy voice. As it started in 2016 and uses all the imaging of Slappy from the movie. It has 12 books out and still has at least 8 more books slated through 2021, baby. So us older folks may think about Goosebumps in the past tense, but clearly that money train has been rolling unabated. So I don't think it's so much what I originally thought before falling down the research hole, which is that nostalgia money made the movie and the movie was responsible for reinvigorating the franchise, but instead that the franchise was apparently doing just fucking fine and the only thing the movie was responsible for was justifying the existence of Slappy World. So thanks for that, Jack Black. Speaking of, so in 2015, the powers that be decided that the time was right probably relating to the 20-year nostalgia cycle and the age of millennials, etc., to make a Goosebumps movie. And also to have Jack Black play R.L. Stein, which, you know, worked out fine, but if you take more than 10 seconds to think about it, is fucking bonkers. Just look at any picture of R.L. Stein. 10-year war hot? 10-year... R.L. Stein, 10-year war hot. Fun side note, back in its heyday in the magical 1990s, George A. Romero was hired to adapt the series into the movie and had drafted a script. Can you imagine? 
I don't know who that is. That's the man who made Night of the Living Dead and like various subsequent sequels. The original zombie movie. Never like, saw the, it. Oh my god, you're the worst person to have this conversation with. Listeners appreciate that we could have had a George A. Romero Goosebumps movie and how fucking buck wild that would be. He drafted a script. He had one written. I want to read it so bad. But alas, it remains a mystery. As to the Goosebumps we got, rather than try to focus on any one plot, they decided to do none of them and also all of them, which is a bold choice. Basically, they get really meta with it, which, you know, I respect. And have R.L. Stein be a character in the fiction, and all his characters come to life out of his books and get wild with it, and our plucky teen heroes have to stop them. It's really fun, campy pastiche of the Goosebumps books, as it should be. Also, Jack Blackstein has a fake teen ghost daughter that he wrote into existence and never explained to her that she's a fake ghost daughter, and the boy teen hero wants to fuck her, and then he finds out, and neither of them tell her that she's a fake teen ghost daughter, which is super fucked up, and at the end, she shouldn't exist anymore, but then she does and there's this creepy understanding that she's like a good boy prize for the teen hero kid from Stein because he saved the day. So that's some shit. Oh, and in the tradition of Goosebumps kids with dumb shit names, there's a dumb shit kid whose name is Champ, and I hate him. And also this song plays. Bob's got a goose ya. I don't even care if the movie's good. This song has lived rent-free in my head for the past five years. Um, there were talks to do a sequel that would follow the Horrorland storyline, but then that didn't happen, and the original director got busy doing Detective Pikachu instead. Plus... In 2018, they did Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween, which has no relation to the first one, and no one from the first one in it, except Jack Black again, but, like, he's uncredited, so I assume it's a cameo. I haven't seen it, but the general take on it is that it's not very good. Before the movies could run, the Goosebumps TV show had to walk. It gave viewers the best of what young acting talent in early 90s Ontario had to offer. Currently in the US, Canada, and UK, it's available on Netflix if you're lazy. It's, uh... Pretty good. The episode's open with R.L. Stein introducing them. He is really fucking awkward. <laughs> He's just like, viewer beware, you're in for a scare. I'm R.L. Stein. This is my spooky show based off of books. Enjoy. Okay, bye. Magnetic. <laughs> Shocking. They contain such bright young stars as Ryan Gosling and Anakin Skywalker. The only other kind of fun things about it is, at the time, TV show ratings weren't a thing yet, so they couldn't give it a, a TVY7 rating, so they made one up. They called it GB7. It was Goosebumps 7. It was too spooky for children under 7. 
Uh, also, there are apparently comic books to, from 2017 to 2020. IDW published four original comic book series titled Monsters at Midnight, Download and Die, Horrors of Witch House, and Secrets of the Swamp, which is way more recent than I would have first thought and speaks towards the longevity of the brand. To that end, just a quick detour into Download and Die, which is literally just an update of Say Cheese and Die, because now it's a hot new app for your phone that's put filters on your pictures, except they show horrible things happening to you, as per Goosebumps. It's absurdly adorable. Obviously, it's cheesy, like a Goosebumps book ought to be. You know, there's a big old twist, and often hilariously, it doesn't quite understand how video games work. The art is well done, as cute as hell, and more importantly, grown men hate it for no good reason, because it was written and illustrated by two women, and the lead characters are girls, two of the three are not white, and the main protagonist is gay. That's right, they put some fucking gay in Goosebumps. Yes, it took until 2018, and you're probably finding out about it now at the same time I am, but it's still cool. And it illustrates that something that I think most people consider like a fun, nostalgic relic might actually have the ability to evolve and continue to reach new audiences, as opposed to just be milk dry in the service of the 20-year cycle and or the millennial desperation to feel a shred of the joy they had when they were like nine or so. Okay, last thing. So yeah, all the usual things you would expect about Goosebumps. Merch, board games, clothes, attractions, all that stuff. And that's some shit you absolutely fucking wouldn't. Like, motherfucking adaptations for the theater. Yeah, I spent all that time fucking around with Jack Black and, and how the bumps were gonna goose you so I could spring on you that back in 1998, a man named Rupert Holmes was like, Yo, you know where Goosebumps would thrive? The stage. And so Holmes, a multiple Tony Award winner, and more importantly, <laughs> the dude who made the Pina Colada song, decided to adapt Goosebumps for the stage. That's a good song. <laughs> yeah. I guess he liked getting spooked in the rain as much as he liked making songs about potentially cheating on your spouse. So he wrote and directed Goosebumps Live on Stage. Not the most creative title. They, they tried to make Spider-Man into a Broadway show, so, you know, there's worse out there. <laughs> the dude who made the song, Do You Like Pina Coladas, made a Goosebumps stage show. The man knows art. It had, it had a companion novel. It was a novelization of a stage adaptation that is itself smushed together the plot of several Goosebumps books. Capitalism! The show, quote, aimed to produce scares and laughs through elaborate special effects, including a giant snake, fiendish funhouse, and Goosebumps' favorite, Slappy the Demon Dummy. The plot of the show was simple. Four kids find themselves in the mysterious Doomsday Bookstore, where the proprietor introduces them to three separate scary stories, all of which they become personally involved in. So the show started touring in September of 1998 with the intention of doing an initial two-year, 50-city North American tour. Starting off in Pensacola, Florida, which honestly people should have recognized as the bad omen it was. Few good things have started in Florida, but nothing good ever starts in Pensacola, Florida. Case in point, just three months later, the tour was paused due to weak ticket sales to never resume as Goosebumps Live went belly up. I'm sorry, it's just absolutely fucking fascinating to me. Every time I hear the Pina Colada song now, I'm gonna think to myself, that's the guy who tanked the Goosebumps stage show in the early 90s. And now you are too. And on that note, we get to the part of the show that we always get to, and that is, hey, RJ. So Goosebumps. Yeah? Good, bad, goosed? Goosebumps is good. I enjoyed them. They were easy reading as a child. 
And it had fisting. Wooden men. Tiny wooden men. Don't get any splinters. No. Because you might then try to go to mommy or daddy to try to get those splinters out. But then you find out mommy and daddy are ghosts. Woo! What do you think gives Goosebumps its staying power? And do you think people will still be talking about Goosebumps in another 50 to 100 years? It spoke to our love of ventriloquism. (laughs) It knew what kids found spooky. I mean, I think it was kind of at the beginning there of like the whole YA thing. So I think it got in early, found a niche for itself. And then it became so big, there was no one to overtake it. I don't know if there's anyone to overtake it in the near future. So I'll stay around for a while. I mean, can anyone else just walk around the streets of New York and come up with a little shop of hamsters? I don't think so. Yet. But maybe soon. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Goosebumps. Yep. How bumpy did it make you? So bumpy. My geese are just bumpy beyond belief. I mean, obviously it's good. Like, we, we, we've made that much clear. It's not entirely true what you said. There was tons of young horror books at the time. There was Christopher Pike. There was Bruce Cavill. Like I said, I was all up in that baby horror shit. I don't know these people. So I guess the point we're making is they haven't had the staying power, maybe, of Goosebumps. Their bumps aren't still goosing. I don't know. Kids like to be spooked. For whatever reason, even though I kept giving myself nightmares, I kept doing it. <laughs> you know, like the adrenaline rush and you can't figure out another way as a child to do it. At least not before puberty. Then you discover ways. Very true. And, you know, if it gets kids reading, then fuck yeah. If it tricks those little bastards into opening a book, then that's a good thing. So, hell yeah, Goosebumps. Reread them, crack open a Goosebumps, reread Dead House, and be like, oh my god, what the fuck, R.L. Stein? What were you on, jovial Bob? Take a trip down memory lane. And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. I hope you enjoyed this the little Halloween trip into something different. Hope your bumps got nice and goosed. If you enjoyed it, tell your family, tell your friends, tell the ghost next door. You can follow us on all the social medias. You can buy things from our store. You can pledge to us on Patreon. And you can find links to all of those things and more. Uh, you can have all of your dreams and all of your nightmares come true by going to ohnolitclass.com. Special shout out to Deb, big fan and special patron, keeping it real in Madagascar. She doesn't want to be in Madagascar right now, but she is keeping it real there. So thank you, Deb. Say thank you to Deb. Thank you. Our next episode will be on October 29th, where we will reach the peak of our spooky powers. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. Go vote or register to vote or get ready to vote. Just check out my curves. Badonk. Do that too. We love you. Bye. Not this time. (laughs) Nope. That's a different show.
<laughs> that was fucking bullshit. That was Jonathan Frakes tells you no. The show. Ripley's. Ripley's. That was it. That was Ripley's Believe It or Not. Nope. Not this time. We made it up. Man, there were a lot of shows about mysterious shit in the 90s, huh?